All right. Well, hey, good morning. It's great to be here. Glad the sun came out. If you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me, as Pastor Rod said, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We've been walking through this short book in the New Testament, and we're just going to, we're going to hit our next passage uh, today. I, we haven't been in the practice at Grace uh, traditionally of providing walkout music for the preacher. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Like you might see on a, on a TV show or an awards show. I've been working with Pastor Rod on this to try to get the crowd. I've suggested some Beatles, uh, maybe. He likes Mozart. I don't know if that would do it. I'll be honest. But if we were to get into the, uh, the practice of providing walkout music for the preacher, then I've selected a particular song today. And so I've asked the, uh, the sound booth if they would help us out with that uh, right now. Okay, that was, uh, you might ask, why did we do that? Um, number one, it's the queen of soul. I don't need a reason. <laughs> number two, I think the thing that most preachers are fearful or worried about is a lack of respect in the pulpit. I heard somebody say on the radio this week, just in passing, nobody likes to be preached to. And I thought, that's my job. Like, what? <laughs> And then number three, why that's the walkout music for this week, is because the one thing, the one big idea from our passage this week in 1 Peter, Peter's claim is that Christians should be known in the culture, in the church, for a posture of respect, of respectfulness, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. I misspelled it first service, so <laughs> you're glad you're in this one. We should be known for a posture of respect in a culture that is not always respectful. That is his big idea. He lays it out crystal clear in this, in this passage in verse 17. Show proper, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, to who? Everyone. Everyone. In the Greek, it literally translates to everyone, right? Everybody. Uh, the ESV says honor everyone. That's his big idea in this passage. And it's not just a nicety. It's not just sort of Miss Manners goes to church this Sunday. I think this is an important passage. It matters because I think we are living in an age that has a dearth, a lack of respect, a lack of respect in our public discourse, in our private discourse, from parents to children, from leaders to servants, on social media, in virtual reality, in reality reality. We're living in an age that has a lack of respect. I have a good friend who's a school teacher. They started school this week. She said on the very first day of school, you know how it is, the line was long. She's a school teacher. It's 105 degrees. She's helping students get to their cars. And she said, three parents cussed at me in front of their children because the line was moving too slowly on the first day of school. Aretha, thou art needed, <laughs> right? We need to hear this not just because it's nice, 
but because the gospel won't go forward in a culture unless the people of the gospel display the attitude, the heart of Jesus, which includes a posture of respect, right? Peter says it this way. If you've got your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to back up a little bit to where we were last week just for context. We'll begin in verse 11. Notice how he starts with respect. He says, dear friends, friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then our passage, he says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is God's word. We're going to read on in just a second. But he says this, show proper respect to everyone. And we could ask this question. We're going to proceed today with sort of questions in in your update. Why does Peter, why must Peter give this command about respecting fallen earthly authorities? He specifically mentions the emperor. He mentions governors. He's going to mention masters later in the passage. Why must he give this command about respecting fallen authorities? And we could start by giving some wrong answers or some bad answers for why he gives this command. The first bad answer or wrong answer is that Peter's personality was just naturally respectful and submissive. He was just born that way. Just res- That's what we know about Peter, right? Like, no, in the words of Dwight Schrute, false, right? <laughs> Peter was not naturally su- respectful. He was not naturally submissive. You can't be naturally submissive and openly rebuke the Son of God, right? Remember that? Peter rebukes Jesus. He doesn't just naturally have this sort of polite temperament. That's a bad, that's a false reason. Here's another one. Peter says this because, he says respect the earthly authorities, because the earthly authorities in Peter's day were very godly and just. False. Again, right? The emperor, when Peter writes this, is a guy by the name of Nero. He will dip Christians in tar, hoist them in the air like human tiki torches. He is a murderous, mother-killing despot. He is not naturally respectful and just. The earthly authorities in Peter's day were not naturally respectful and just. So that's a bad reason for why Peter would say this. Here's the last reason. It's an answer given by a lot of sort of modern liberal scholars. Peter writes this. He tells us to respect the earthly authorities because he is a, quote, shill for the man, the man, in air quotes, and he is trying to prop up oppressive and unjust regimes, right? That's a bad answer, I think. If Peter is a shill for the man, he's very bad at it because he gets crucified hanging upside down by the very earthly authorities 
he calls us to respect. This critique oftentimes is, it comes from like a Marxist reading that says that religion is the opiate of the masses. The Bible was given to us to keep us docile and subservient so that oppression could go unchecked. Right? I would say that's false. Terry Eagleton says, religion more often than not has not been the opium of the masses, it has been the cocaine of the masses. It provides a stimulant and not just something that makes us docile, right? So all of those answers, I would say, are bad answers for why Peter calls us to respect our earthly fallen authorities. What's the right answer? Why does Peter do this? And I think he just tells us in the passage in verse 15. Why does he do it? He does it because by doing good, you can silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. He's talking about the kind of ignorant talk that is saying things like, oh, those Christians, they're going to be the downfall of society. Those Christians, they want to overthrow the emperor and install it. That's the ignorant talk he's, he's talking about. He says, by acting with respect to the fallen earthly authorities, you can silence that sort of ignorant, maligning, denigrating speech that is cast towards Christ. And you can do it by your acts of respectful service, he says. The credo of the early church was that Jesus is Lord. Christos kurios. And if Jesus is Lord, the implication was, as N.T. Wright says, Caesar isn't. And that could be a subversive truth claim. If Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't. And so the false, ignorant talk that Peter is speaking of here is this idea, a misunderstanding of Jesus as Lord, either on the part of the early church, because they don't quite understand it yet, or on the part of the pagan culture, a misunderstanding of Jesus as Lord could lead to two things, zealotry and disrespect. Zealotry was as one New Testament scholar says, zealotry is something you do with a sword. You don't like your earthly authorities, and so you pull out the sword and you overthrow them. And there was some concern in the early church because they were worshiping Jesus as King and Lord, that that might lead to pulling out the sword of zeal and trying to overflow, overthrow the earthly authorities. And Peter says, that's, that's not what we're about. We're not leading a sort of violent revolution. And we're also not about disrespect. Our kingdom is going to come by acts of love and not by acts of violence, not by acts of disrespect. And so that's the first century context. Let's talk about now. One of the things, it's a frightening thought, but they let me teach preaching. <laughs> and there's a term in homiletics in preaching because we know that the, the exact situation of the Bible is different from ours. We don't have an emperor. He talks about the emperor and all that stuff. But, but our fallen condition, people are the same in every era. First century, 21st century, people are fallen. And so we talk about in any passage, and you can use this in your Bible study tomorrow morning in your devotional time, the passage might not perfectly exactly describe your situation because it's a different culture. But what's the fallen condition? And here's the fallen condition I think this passage speaks to, not just then, but for all of us. The fallen condition is this. 
that there's always a temptation for God's people, then or now, to treat a fallen culture with disrespect, partly because a fallen culture can and will be disrespectful. Amen? There's always this temptation in all humans to respond to disrespect or slights by sort of fighting fire with fire. And Jesus, Peter would say, you don't defeat a monster by becoming like it. You don't win by the way of the dragon, you win by the way of the lamb. And so he says, respect everybody. What if they don't deserve it? Even then, do it. My new boss, a guy by the name of Jim Dunn, he's the president at Oklahoma Wesley, and he was talking to me the other day, and he said, one of the things he does, he wishes everyone a personal happy birthday greeting on Facebook, which I'm like, ain't nobody got time for that. Like, you got a lot of friends. Like, he does, I'm amazed by it. And he said the other day, he was corrected. He was kind of rebuked. He said, and somebody said, why did you wish that person a happy birthday? Do you know what they've done? And he said, because they had a birthday. <laughs> Everybody deserves a happy birthday. That's not how we operate in the kingdom of God. We don't dole out respect based on whether you do or don't think somebody deserves it. Where would we be with God if that were how it worked? Peter says, respect everyone, everyone. This past week, um, because school is starting, we had a service day, and I, I brought a picture of me on the service day in my floppy hat. Can you believe they let me onto the premises of Ranch Heights Elementary looking like that? Uh, and we were painting these lines to where kids can sit their, their, their sack lunches. And I put this up there, not to brag, but to show you how horrible my yellow line was. <laughs> it looks like I was under the influence when I did it. But, why do we do this? Well, first of all, it wasn't my idea, so I wasn't bragging. I was just attending and participating. Uh, my kids don't go to that school, right? They go to a different school. It's like, why do we do that? Because as Rod constantly says, the church is about establishing a culture of honor, right? It doesn't matter if you go to our church or don't go to our church, public school, private school. We want to approach others with a posture of respect, respect Everyone, honor everyone, Peter says. He does that for a reason, to silence this maligning talk so that the gospel can go forward. And so that's the why. What's the, the what? What? What does it mean? What does Christ-like respect and submission look like in this passage? Peter talks about the ruling authorities, and I think he just, he tells us. It's a very nice three-point sermon. He says, show proper respect to everybody. Now, here's what this looks like. Number one, love the family of believers. Number two, fear God. Number three, honor the emperor. Love your family, your church family. Fear your God. Honor your emperor. That's what proper respect with regard to authorities and relationships looks like. Those are just three, three ways in which it looks. And so I want to walk through these just sort of one by one. Why does he say love the family of believers? Why say this? And I think this is my translation, but I think we constantly need reminding that the church is a family and not a fast food restaurant. 
drive in, get fed, maybe pay, <laughs> drive out. It's not how it is. We constantly need reminding that the church is a family and not a fast food. He says, love your family. This is your family, right? And in a room this size with this many people, it doesn't mean you can get to know every person intimately, but it does need that you need a spiritual family. It can't just be a fast food restaurant. Fast food Christianity leads to the same health defects as fast food on a daily basis does in your physical life, right? It's not healthy. And Pastor Rod last week mentioned this beautiful book by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. I've, she's been to Bartlesville before, and she got saved. She was a, a gender studies professor. She was openly lesbian, living in a, she was teaching at a secular university, and she got saved by meeting an elderly couple from a conservative Christian church who had absolutely zero in common with her. How did she build a relationship? Respect. They approached her with a posture of respect. And so last week, Pastor Rod mentioned her first book, Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. It's a really beautifully written book. She's an English professor. Her second book, who recently came out, is called this. I love the title. I haven't read it. That should be my bumper sticker for like sermons. I love the title. I haven't read it. The title is, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And the reason she wrote it is she said, when I came out of the LGBT community, we had to be each other's family. In the 1980s, like we were, these people didn't have anywhere else to go. We were family, right? And I got saved and I came into the church and I didn't miss my old way of life, but what I missed was a sense of family. Russell Moore, I have a picture of this book, The, the Storm-Tossed Family how the cross reshapes the home. And he talks about a young gang member in there that he, he met who got saved. And he said this young gang member told him, Russ, I don't miss my old way of life. I don't miss the drugs. I don't miss the crime. I don't miss the violence. But I miss a feeling of family. Amen. And the church constantly needs to be reminded that we are a family. We're not a fast food restaurant. So Peter says, first of all, if we're talking about respect, love, love your family. And because you can fight with family, you can be annoyed with family, perhaps more than you can be with strangers, it becomes imperative to say to your family, I love you. I'm glad you're in the room with me. Here's a house key. Don't misunderstand. I'm not giving you a house key. <laughs> but you need a circle of people within the family of God who have the house key, so to speak, so that you can have family-style respect and family-style relationships. That's part of the family of, of God. Love your family. Secondly, fear God. Fear God. And this isn't, we said last time, this isn't the kind of fear that's like, oh no, God, anytime you mess up, God's got a lightning bolt with your name on it. It's not that kind of fear. What it is is a kind of reverential awe that God is God and I am not. And God is not my cosmic buddy, right? He does love me like a son. He is my friend, but he is wholly other. He is transcendent. He's the creator of all things. And I fear him, not because he's fearful in the sense that he wants to zap me, but because when I fear God, I'm less likely to fear others. Amen? Amen. 
I'm less likely to fear my circumstances. I'm less likely to fear my enemies. I'm less likely to fear the future because we've placed fear, reverential awe, in its proper home. It belongs under the God category, not the others. And most specifically, it doesn't belong under the category that we're going to look at next, which is the emperor. I think part of the reason Peter says to fear God is so that you won't fear the emperor. And if you don't fear him because he's not God, it allows you to honor him with a posture of respect that is very different than a posture of worship. When Peter writes this, the Roman emperors are demanding worship, starting with Augustus, which was the, the emperor when Jesus was born. They began to call themselves Divi Filius, which in Latin means son of God. And they began to demand worship. And the early church, following after the tradition of the Jews, said, we won't pray to you because you're not God. But we will pray for you because God tells us to respect our leaders. Honor the emperor, Peter says. Honor, show honor. What does that mean? Let's start with what it doesn't mean, just like we did previously. It doesn't mean, we'll back up just a little bit, it doesn't mean you give the emperor, whomever the leader is in your country, the president, the king, the congress, the prime minister, it doesn't mean that you give them unqualified obedience. Because it may be that the emperor asks for something that you can't rightly give them. If the emperor, or in Germany's case, the Fuhrer, says you need to go and arrest the Jews, you don't do that. Honor does not necessarily mean unqualified obedience. It does not necessarily mean an absence of critique, prophetic critique. And we know this because we see Peter and Paul and Jesus and the Hebrew prophets critique the earthly leaders at certain points. The Hebrew prophets critique the kings and remind the kings that they are not God. And so whatever honor means, it doesn't mean necessarily that you can't critique or disagree with your leaders. It doesn't mean necessarily endorsement of everything they do. It doesn't mean silence necessarily. It doesn't mean complicity with evil, right? Honor doesn't mean any of those things, but it does mean something. And so here's just a couple of thoughts on what it means when Peter says this, honor the emperor. I think it means that you respect the position enough to pray for the person. You respect the position of emperor or president or prime minister or whatever enough to pray for the person even if you don't like them. Right? Hypothetically, in your lifetime, there might be a leader you don't like. <laughs> Just maybe, right? If you live long enough. And so Christians aren't called to agree with all their leaders, but they are called to pray for their leaders. Honor the emperor, Peter says. And that means respecting the position, even to pray for the person, even or perhaps especially if you don't like them. Right? Sometimes we need to pray, especially for the leaders we don't like, because not just because they need it, but because we need it. 
Because the seeds of bitterness in our soul are sprouting and they are going untended in our gardens. And if we don't pray for that person, we're going to lash out in vindictiveness and the gospel is going to be hindered because we lack a posture of respect. Right? Secondly, resist. Peter says, honor the emperor. What does that mean? I think in our day, it means we resist the cultural temptation to believe that everything rises and falls on politics. Amen? We live in an age that is fraught with, with partisanship, with the 24-hour news cycle, with, with bitterness and anger on both sides, right? And the temptation is for Christians to believe the hype. And the hype says that politics is all. And the gospel says, no, Jesus is all. Kingdom of God. We've already got our guy. <laughs> His name's Jesus. It doesn't mean these issues aren't important. They are, they are very important. It doesn't mean you can't have opinions. But it does mean, when Peter says, fear God, honor the emperor, that we resist that temptation to believe that everything rises and falls on, on politics. It didn't in Peter's day. Nero was the emperor, and Jesus was on the throne. Amen? Honor the emperor. Don't worship him. Now, the question that comes up next is the part of the passage we haven't read. And the part of the passage we haven't read moves from a difficult subject, politics. I don't know why Pastor Rod, he gives me really hard passages. I don't know. It just came up. I don't know. From politics to slaves and masters and Peter's instructions there. And so the question that comes up here is, does this posture of respect and submission, does it end up basically becoming a perpetuation of abuse? Does it become a perpetuation or even perhaps a tacit endorsement of abuse? And so we need to read this part of the passage too, beginning in verse 18. It says this, after he says, show proper respect, he says this, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, Christ, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Peter makes this turn. He turns from slaves and masters. He tells the slaves to respect their masters, to honor them. And then he turns to Jesus who bore up under unjust suffering himself. And if we misread this, if we read it wrongly, 
then what ends up happening is we say, well, okay, well, Jesus, he opened not his mouth in the face of abuse, and so we ought to just open not our mouth in the face of abuse, and we ought to just continue to let it happen. And the answer is no. That is not what this passage means. Right? So respect, proper respect for authorities does not entail an endorsement or a perpetuation of abuse. Doesn't this perpetuate abuse? And the answer is no, it doesn't. And this week I, I took some time because this passage has been fraught with controversy, not just because of slavery, but because of uh, abuse and things like this. This week I watched a video. I brought a picture of a gal. Her name's Rachel Dinhollander. You may have seen her on the news. She was the first public accuser of the Michigan State's uh, gymnastic coach, Larry Nasser, who abused literally dozens and dozens of young girls over, year, over years and got away with it because he was an authority figure. And so time after time, he would be reported, and time after time, the person who reported it would be silenced, and it would be swept under the rug, and the abuse would continue. And finally, Rachel Dinhollander had had enough, and she reported it publicly. And that brought a cascade of events that resulted recently in his, his conviction. And so this week, I, I watched the entire victim impact statement of Rachel Dinhollander. I don't, it's not an easy thing to watch, but it's stunning because Rachel's a Christian. I've met her, I've met her husband. Her husband is a, a theology scholar, he's a New Testament scholar. And what Rachel does is she brings together in this victim impact statement the idea of justice and forgiveness. That justice and forgiveness are not antithetical. And it is entirely possible for us to work for justice and to hold evil people accountable and to offer forgiveness. And she says at the end of this victim impact statement, I hope that the state levels and levies the full penalty for your crime. And they did. And she said, I hope you find Jesus. And I hope you find forgiveness with him. They're not antithetical. So whatever respect from slaves to masters, from us to our authority figures mean, it doesn't mean the perpetuation of abuse. Rachel said this in her statement, that the cross and Jesus' submission to it is the ultimate divine word against abuse and injustice. It shows us how seriously God takes sin, our sin, and the sin of others, and it shows us how God identifies fully with the victims, even while he loves the perpetrators. Father, forgive them, he says from the cross. Peter in this passage talks about the slaves who endure, quote, unjust suffering. And we just read over that passage, and we don't realize that in the ancient world, Aristotle had said it was impossible to do anything unjust to a slave. Peter says, no, you are God's slaves. And that implies that even masters will give an answer. And so he's not just endorsing abuse. He's asking these Christians who are in the midst of a difficult situation to continue following the way of Jesus. 
I. Howard Marshall has a quote about this passage, and he, he talks about the, the question of whether this posture endorses abuse, and you'll forgive my typo, but he says, when Peter speaks of bearing suffering, how we ought to bear suffering, he means bearing it without retaliation. One can take action against injustice and abuse and unjust structures without engaging in personal retaliation. He says that's what Peter means. He's not endorsing abuse. He's saying we ought not to lash back with retaliation. So who is the model or what is the model for doing this? I tell my students, answered every question, Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Now what's the question? He says in this passage, Jesus is the model. He quotes from Isaiah, Peter does, Isaiah 53, and how Jesus went to the cross bearing our sins. And Jesus saves not by adopting the way of the dragon, the way of disrespect, but by adopting the way of the lamb. The great Scottish preacher James Dinney, he says this of the end of our passage. He says, it is as though the apostle could not turn his eyes to the cross for a moment without being fascinated and held by it. He saw more in it habitually And so this passage is not just about the interests of wrong slaves, but the interest of all sinners in it turning to Jesus as the only source of redemption by which Peter is ultimately inspired. The cross gives us the ultimate picture, not just of respect, not just of toleration, but of love. When we look to the cross, we see what Jesus does toward his enemies, and that enables us to do something other than lash out or disrespect ours. Give proper respect, he says, to everyone. Love the family of God. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray.